Good morning. I'm sure we've surprised several of you yet again with, a, with another change up in our uh, teaching schedule. Early this week, uh, the elders determined to hold off on beginning the uh, study through 1st and 2nd Corinthians until we're able to be together again physically, if at all possible. So for at least the next few weeks, we're going to devote our teaching hour to matters that can be addressed in a few messages. I pray that our focus this morning will prove to be useful to God and to be an encouragement to you all. Pray with me as we begin. Loving Father, give us receptive hearts this morning. Sear into our hearts your, your sacred commission to us to diligently guard the unity that you have so marvelously brought about in your spiritual household, your church. We ask it in Jesus' incomparable name. Amen. What are you passionate about? What is it that spikes your zeal meter and makes it hard to shut you up because you're so convinced of its great importance? If I asked every friend of yours to tell me which causes you are most devoted to, how many of their answers would include guarding the unity of the body of Christ? I can say without any fear of misrepresenting God that he intends for that unity to be so high on your list of priorities and on mine that nobody who truly knows us could ever be in doubt about how important every one of us holds that unity to be. My goal this morning is to demonstrate that God's Word demands that devotion to Christian unity and to encourage all of us, including me, <laughs> to, to be renewed in that devotion, especially in this very turbulent uh, context in the history of this country and of the church uh, and really of the world. A second goal is that you and I will be renewed in our commitment to speak the to speak the truth to one another in love as the single most important thing that we do to nurture our oneness in Christ. The passage that we're going to focus on most intently this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 20. And since we rather recently did a series on Ephesians, uh, some of this will, will be things that you've heard before, but these are certainly things that we need to hear regularly uh, and that, that we need to have in mind constantly. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul sets before us what he calls the unfathomable riches of Christ. This, the vast treasure of wealth that God has lavished upon all whom he has saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Among other things, that, that lavish treasure includes being chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in the eyes of God. It includes being predestined to adoption as sons of God, being 
redeemed and forgiven of our sins through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. That wealth includes having the great mystery of the ages laid out before us by God. His plan to gather together the things in heaven and the things on earth under the headship of Christ. That wealth includes having been granted an eternal inheritance that no one can take away from us and having already received the down payment, the first part of that inheritance, in the person of the indwelling Holy Spirit as the guarantee of all the rest that God has prepared for us in His presence. All of that is found in just 11 verses of the first chapter of Ephesians. In chapter 2, Paul adds to that treasure trove the miraculous unity that God has created in Christ that forever binds all believers together, regardless of anything that makes us different from one another. It's the unity that destroyed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, slave and free man, male and female, and that destroyed every other division that separates people from other people, and that has forever made us into one new man in Christ alone. God already created that unity that exists in his church. Ephesians 2 verse 14 says, He himself is our peace who already made both Jew and Gentile into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments and ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. He already put to death that which separated us. If you put all of the, the pieces, and there's, there's, there are a few more things to mention in chapters 1 through 3, but if you put all of it together, Paul identifies that mountain of wealth as our calling. What we have been given by God in union with Christ. And then he begins chapter 4 by making a critical connection between our calling and our commission. What we have been given and what we are to do. He tells us that our, that our commission, what we're commanded by God to do, proceeds from our calling, what God has given us. Now, and as I read the first three verses of chapter 4, I'll ask you to listen for the very first thing that our high calling demands of our behavior. <clears throat> Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance toward one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places by forever uniting us with Christ. He has showered us with the unfathomable riches of Christ. He has miraculously destroyed every division that separates us 
and he has bound us together with one another into one new man in Christ. And at the very heart, at the very heart of the only walk, the only way of living out that new life that is worthy of what we've been given is that we must guard the unity that God has created. Our task isn't to create unity. God already did that. Our task is to guard the unity that God already created. The word that's translated preserve in verse 3, when it says being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, is a Greek word that means to watch, guard, or keep. To watch, guard, or keep. It's really all of the above. One vivid and biblically consistent way to understand the powerful connotations of that great word is to consider the task of a shepherd. A faithful shepherd is devoted to the sheep under his care. He tends to every need of those sheep. He protects his sheep from all manner of threats, from predatory animals, from thieves, and from the elements. He stands between every threat and the sheep that he has been entrusted to guard, putting himself in the most vulnerable position of all. In 1 Samuel 17, you know the story, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it a little bit because it really goes, I think, goes to the heart of this, this idea of guarding. In that chapter, a Philistine giant named Goliath demanded a one-on-one -on -one battle with the greatest warrior that Israel could set before him. He wanted it to be a challenge. A teenage shepherd boy from the tribe of Judah named David came to Saul, king of Israel, and that boy declared his intention to be that warrior, to personally go up against the giant Goliath. King Saul said to David, David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant, he's talking about himself, was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and I attacked him and I rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. And you know the rest of the story, right? God used that teenage boy to kill that giant with nothing but a sling and a stone. And he killed him on the very first shot. The only better example that I can find of a valiant guardian is Jesus, the, the perfect shepherd and guardian of our souls who laid down his life for his sheep. Beloved, it is to that same heart that God calls every believer when it comes to guarding the unity of his flock. 
his church. Are you and I willing to lay down our lives to preserve and protect and nurture that God-created oneness? If you and I do not yet have this seared into our souls, we need to understand that God will not relent until he accomplishes that searing. Building up and protecting the unity of the body of Christ in love is at the top of God's list of priorities for his people. It is at the heart of a walk, a lifestyle that is worthy of our high calling as heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And that assignment applies not only to elders or deacons, but to every son and daughter of, of God. Friends, if you are more zealous about the outcome of November's election than you are about protecting the unity of the body of Christ, your priorities are wrong. If you are more zealous about the advancement of racial and social justice than you are about preserving the unity of the body of Christ, then your priorities are wrong. If you are more zealous about the battle to end the scourge of abortion than you are about protecting the unity of the body of Christ, your priorities are wrong. If you are more zealous about guarding and preserving the, God, the, the supposedly God-given rights and protections that Christians in America once enjoyed than you are about guarding and preserving the unity of the body, the bride of Christ, your priorities are misplaced. Whatever legitimacy any of those causes have for Christians to engage, and, and some of them certainly should be engaged by Christians, all of them, all of them pale by comparison with God's explicit commission to us to work hard at cherishing and protecting the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you or I allow our zeal for any of those lesser pursuits to undermine the unity of the church in any way, we will be at cross purposes with God. We will be sinning. Let me say that again in case anyone was dozing. <laughs> if you allow your zeal for any lesser pursuit to undermine the unity of the body of Christ in any way, you will be at cross purposes with God. You will be sinning. If you say, I, I see where you get that from the Bible and I know it's true, but then you carry on with posting divisive and accusatory statements against Christians who disagree with you on issues like those, you will be sinning. If we give this critical commission from God no more than a passing thought, and then we go right back to saying and doing things that undermine the unity of the church, 
that create needless division between Christians, we will be sinning. And that's not a sin of omission. It is a violation of one of the most sacred assignments that God has given to his people. And God takes it very seriously. Talking with your brothers and sisters in Christ about issues on which you have strong convictions is good, even commendable. Talking is good. Talking smack is not. So how do we move decisively in the right direction to honor this divine commission? Well, to guard the unity that God has created, we have to speak the truth that God has revealed. To guard the unity that God has created, we have to speak the truth that God has revealed to one another in love. Let me read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So how is it that every individual member of the body of Christ gets to participate in building up and growing up the body in all aspects into Christ? Well, an indispensable part of that how is by speaking the truth to one another in love. What truth? The truth that Verse 21 of Ephesians 4 says, is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. Now that filters out a whole lot of other stuff that people like to call truth, doesn't it? The truth that is in Jesus. The truth Paul is talking about is the propositional truth about Christ through which the Holy Spirit imparts to his redeemed the personal knowledge of Christ. Christ. It is the truth that is revealed through the words of Jesus and that is revealed through the words about Jesus that have been breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God through the prophets and apostles in both testaments of the Bible. It is the truth that we lay hold of, that we receive through the gateway of the mind by having our minds renewed. Putting on the new man that God has already created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's all in Ephesians 4. It's the truth concerning the one who is the embodiment of truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the truth that we're to speak to one another in love. And again, that filters out a whole lot of other conversation. 
It eliminates many of the things that people hold with strong convictions. It eliminates those things from the category of that which God calls the truth. The truth we are to speak is the truth that's found in Jesus. As I'm going to read, I'm going to carry on and read Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 25. And as I do, please listen for references to the truth and to the mind. Paul says, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, believer, you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and, you, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Verse 25, therefore, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He's talking about speaking truth to your fellow saints, your the other believers. The therefore in verse 25 is powerfully important. Because the truth that is in Christ is the building material of Christian unity, because the truth that is in Jesus alone transforms futile thinking and darkened understanding into intimate personal knowledge of our great God and Savior, because the truth that is in Jesus builds up and nurtures the oneness and maturity of God's new creation, the church, because the only way to put on the new man is to have our minds renewed in that truth. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The rest of Ephesians chapter 4 and the first half of chapter 5 follow through on that indispensable assignment to speak truth to one another in love in order to guard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Very much of the rest of chapters 4 and 5 are about what we are to say and not to say to one another. In Ephesians 4 verses 26 and 27, Paul commands us to give our anger a very short lifespan, to deal with that anger before the sun goes down. The truth, which proclaims God's gracious forgiveness and redemption of rebellious sinners through the atoning blood of Jesus, dispenses with any assumption that we might have that one of us 
has a superior position before God compared with another of us. It's hard to hold on to anger when the only one in the discussion with any moral superiority is God. The truth transforms the way we walk. In verse 28, Paul instructs any believer who has been in the habit of stealing to steal no longer, but to work hard with his hands in order to have something to share with the one who has need. Knowing what we deserve from God and knowing that he has lavished upon us the wealth of eternal gifts that we have been given in Christ makes us love giving to one another rather than taking from one another. The truth transforms the walk. In verse 29, Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. We who know God's assignment to build up and to nurture the miraculous oneness that he has created in his church understand that our words must build up and not tear down. The truth transforms the walk. Verse 30 drives home that simple revolutionary truth uh, like, a, like a grand slam. It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We who know that we've received the indwelling Holy Spirit as the down payment of our eternal relationship and fellowship with God together with all the saints in the place that he has prepared for us, we have the most compelling reason anyone will ever have for building one another up in love. The truth transforms the walk. We who know that the spirit that God has given us as the down payment of that inheritance dwells within us, we have every reason not to grieve the spirit by dividing the church. Verses 31 and 32 instruct us to cast as far away from us as we can all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice and to forgive one another just as God in Christ also has forgiven us. It's easy to forgive when you truly know and understand what you have been forgiven by God, right? The truth transforms the walk. And when we speak that truth to one another in love, God uses us as his instruments to bring about that transformation of behavior in each other. The, the very behavior that he's talking about here. The great importance of words that proclaim the truth found in Christ in love continues to pervade this, this passage. After commanding us to walk in love as Christ loved us, Paul says in chapter 5, there must be no filthiness and silly talk, 
No coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving a thanks. See how all that ties to what comes out of our mouths? He commands us not to be partakers with the sons of disobedience, but to walk as children of light, exposing the unfruitful deeds of darkness. One of the powerful works that God does in our hearts when we gather to worship and praise Him together is the work that He does through the words that we speak and sing in each other's presence. In Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 16, Paul says, it's actually verses 15 to 20, he says, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Colossians 3 presents a version of that same essential set of commands. And in that passage, there's another element added, and that is the importance of having the Word of God richly dwelling in our hearts. Because that's where we behold the truth that is in Jesus. That's where we find the truth that we are to speak to each other in love. At the end of that uh, of those verses, in, verse, in Ephesians 5, verses 19 and 20, Paul comes to the, to the element of thankfulness. And he says, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. The truth that we speak to each other in love makes us thankful. It makes us grateful. The lies that bombard us from every other source in this world rob us of joy and they, they build discontent in our hearts. But the truth makes us grateful. Christians who are thankful for receiving the unfathomable riches of Christ that we could never deserve do not grumble or complain about the state of affairs in the church, the union, or the world. Now, that doesn't mean that we take an unquestioning approach to what's going on in any of those contexts, but it absolutely does mean that we do not speak or act as if any of what goes on in any of those realms determines anything about our well-being. We know better. A person who has nothing to fear from any created thing or any created being does not harbor anger toward created things or created beings, even if those created beings happen to be Christians. Like Joseph, the son of Jacob, we know the truth because God has told it 
to us. We know that what men intend for evil, God intends for good. We know that what Paul says in Romans 8.28 is true, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We know that Romans 8 verses 31 to 39 is true, that no created thing will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And because we know that truth that is in Jesus, we have zero reason ever to feel threatened by any created thing or to hold anger toward any created thing. Instead, we have every reason to rejoice in all things. Beloved, the truth that we are called to continually speak to one another is the truth that is found in Jesus. And the final point that I want to raise this morning that is critically important, I've already said it several times, but I want to drill down on it, is that, this, that we must speak that truth in love. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that it's possible to know everything that is worthy of being known and to believe those things with a faith that is sufficiently real to move mountains and yet not to have love. See, it's possible to be as correct as correct can be without being loving. Brothers and sisters, that won't get the job done. If that's how I go about asserting the things that, that are correct, then I am nothing. I've nullified, I've canceled out the usefulness of all my knowledge and faith, and I am at cross purposes with God. I can be right as rain in my assertions and yet sabotage the mission that God has assigned to me as an ambassador of Christ on earth. If I speak the truth that is in Jesus, but I am not loving in doing so, I contradict the truth that I speak. Because that truth is all about the redeeming, grace-driven love of God toward hostile rebels against God, just like I once was. That truth is about the incomprehensible love of God that saves people just as undeserving as you and me. In Titus 3, starting at verse 1, Paul says, Remind them, the believers in Crete, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, and then listen to this, to malign no one. To malign no one. Amazing that that comes right after a verse that says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. To malign no one, to be peaceful, peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And then he tells us why. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. If our assessment of ourselves before God brought us to faith is any better than that, then we're wrong in our assessment. And he says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, 
but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's all grace. If we know what we deserve, we know how to treat one another. What we deserve and what we've been given. God never says, make others receive the truth. He never says, nag others into submission to the truth. He says, speak the truth in love. Not in anger. Not in fear not in frustration, and certainly not in self-righteous judgment, but in love, knowing that we deserve the same thing from God that everyone else deserves. So when any, any of us uses social media or any other forum to execute drive-by verbal beatings of our fellow Christians, even for taking positions that we know God calls wrong, we're not speaking the truth in love. And when we dispense those verbal beatings over matters that God has not clearly commanded or clearly forbidden in his word, we have strayed way outside of our assignment. We are sinning against God and we are sinning against the bride of Christ. Romans 14 is talking about those very kinds of issues. Issues in which God has not clearly commanded or forbidden the behavior that is causing division between Christians. Verse 4 of Romans 14 says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Beloved, this isn't negotiable. If you think that it is in any way okay for you to malign or insult or shame a fellow Christian because that brother or sister doesn't have your strong convictions about what kind of diet Christians should observe or whether it's okay for Christians to drink wine or to go to a yoga class or whether it's okay for a Christian dad to let his kids wear costumes and go trick-or-treating on Halloween or whether capitalism is superior to socialism, or how to address racial injustice, or what qualifies to be called racial injustice, or when and whether to wear face masks, or how to vote in the November election, or anything else that God's word does not clearly command or forbid, if you think it's okay to malign or insult or shame a fellow Christian over any of those things, you are dividing what God has made one, and that is sin. And God takes the sins that divide his church very, very seriously. Titus 3 verse 10 says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning that person once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped 
and sinful and is self-condemned. That's really strong language. It means this is not negotiable. There are times, beloved, when we must call out a fellow saint, and there are times when doing so might require forceful words. And very rarely, there are times when correction needs to happen publicly. That will only happen when what's at stake is the truth that is in Jesus. Galatians 2 is a powerful example. Peter's refusal to eat with Gentile believers at Antioch was a denial of the truth that is in Jesus. Paul said that Peter was, quote, not being straightforward about the gospel. Peter got the point. And as forceful as Paul's words were, his purpose toward Peter was a loving purpose, and the zealous goal of his words was to guard the unity of the church when that unity was being undermined by Peter. Beloved, we've been given a sacred, vital assignment by the one who saved us to guard and nurture and build up the oneness that he has miraculously created in his spiritual household. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul calls that household the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So let's make sure that we're, what we're calling truth is the truth that is found in Jesus alone. Let's make sure that, that the truth that we get excited about and that we, that we are compelled to defend and that we will go to the ropes to, to, to protect <laughs> is the truth that is in Christ Jesus. And let's speak that truth to one another, always in love, so that we may all grow up in all aspects into him who is our head, Christ. Dear Father, we desire your work in each of our hearts in this marvelous assignment. Make us faithful always to speak the truth, the truth, to one another in love so that the miraculous unity you've created will be protected, not diminished, through our words and our actions. We ask this for the sake of and to the glory of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.